Hosea 14, verse 1, the blessings of repentance. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. Amen. In this final chapter of Hosea, Hosea calls on them to repent by the word of the Lord, and he even recommends a way to repent or a way to express repentance in verse 2. And then God promises in verses 4 to 7 to heal them and to cause them to be fruitful. And lastly, in verses 8 and 9, in 8, God in his last question to them about idols. He is done with it. He's done with idols. And he finally, one more time says that if you give up your idols, I will be that which causes good fruit to be born in you. And then in verse nine, true wisdom is following God. True wisdom is following God, not the ways of the world, the flesh and the devil. Because if you do follow them, you'll stumble, fall, and be destroyed. Verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He expresses repentance by this word return, which is also mentioned again in verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. We shouldn't be confused by the word return. Return doesn't mean that they were once secure and fine and saved, then they departed and then they came back. Don't let the word, the etymology of the word, if you break it up, re and turn, confuse you. It's the same with the word repent. It doesn't mean you once were in Christ and then you went away from Christ, lost your salvation, and then you repent come back to him and be saved again. The, the prepositions are irrelevant in this matter. The prepositions, the etymology is irrelevant in terms of the components of the words. He's basically saying, turn away from sin. Turn away from sin. Turn from sin, turn to God. That's what this word return means. It's a word that is frequently in the Bible as a synonym for repentance. He's calling them to repent. A couple of New Testament examples of this word, to repent. The first one, to return meaning to repent. The first one is in 1 Peter 2.25. 1 Peter 2.25 where he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. They were, we were straying like sheep, but now we have returned, we have repented. And just turn a page or two in your Bible to James, back 
a page to James 5, 19 and 20. Verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James, in the translators have rendered it in verses 19 and 20, turn back and turn from. And turn back or turn from. Turn away from sin and turn to God to be saved and to have your sins covered. The same concept is here in Hosea 14.1. He's calling on them to repent. And repentance, remember, it means to turn away from sin. It does not mean merely to have a different mind or different opinion of God. Because even the demons know the truth about God, but they are unsaved. So having factual knowledge, true factual, factual knowledge about God, does not equate to biblical repentance for salvation. It actually is turning away from evil and turning to God. That's why he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Instead of idols... Instead of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they ought to turn to God himself. Israel in verse 1 is the same as Ephraim in verse 8. Israel, the typical name for the northern kingdom, and in verse 8, Ephraim, one of the major tribes of the northern kingdom, therefore a synonym often in poetry, such as in the prophets the same nation, the northern kingdom. They are the ones that had 20 evil kings. They are the ones that did not have any good examples to lead them in the right way, as the southern kingdom Judah had. And yet, God preaches to them repentance so that among them, a few, a remnant, might repent and be saved. Further, verse 1, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Why did they stumble? Did they stumble because God was enjoying watching them trip up and fall and stumble? Was it God who was causing this to happen? Who was it that caused them to stumble? It was their own sin. Remember, that fearful, ominous chapter, Hosea 9, where there was so much sin and misery, destruction and death described. The point in Hosea 9 was that it's your fault, Israel. It's your sins. It's your iniquity. That's why you are in your predicament. That's why you cannot save yourself. In Romans 7, the whole chapter of Romans 7 is taken up defending the holy, righteous, and good law of God and pointing the blame on the flesh, our sin, the law of sin. The whole of Romans 7 encompasses that doctrine to prove the point that it's our sin that causes us to stumble, to fall, and be destroyed, not God. We should never blame God, always blame ourselves when sin takes place. Verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. In verse 2, he says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Take words, take up some words. Think about what you're going to say. Don't be frivolous. Don't be casual and callous about the way you speak to God. But take sincere, honest, true words to God. Take them with you to repent. And what is it that we must say? Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. It's necessary for us to plead with God to remove our sins. That's why he says, 
take away all iniquity, or we are to say, take away all iniquity. If we have our iniquities taken away, then God receives us graciously. Isn't that what we just read in James 5, 19 and 20? Save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The sins are covered or the sins are taken away. John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It's only in God, God in Christ, who can take away our sins. A good example of taking away sins or pleading with God to be merciful is Luke 18. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Luke 18, verse 9. 9 to 14. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The tax collector kept his head down, beat his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The same in Hosea 14 too. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. We plead with God for his grace. And what is the purpose or what is the result after we have asked God pled with him to take away our sins. It says that we may present the fruit of our lips. That we may present the fruit of our lips. What does he mean by that? It says literally, you may have a footnote in your Bible that says, our lips as bulls. Bulls, B-U-L-L-S, the animal. Our lips as bulls. Why would the prayer include this? What is this prayer? It's saying, just as an animal is sacrificed, like a bull is sacrificed, may the praise or thanksgiving of our lips be the sacrifice that results from you washing away our sins. We come to you in thankfulness that you have taken away our sins. Just like an animal is offered, may we offer our lips as though it were an animal. And may you accept what we say. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says the following. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In verse 15, Sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And then the sacrifices of good deeds in verse 16. The sacrifice first of the lips and then the sacrifice of the life in good deeds toward one another. That's the kind of sacrifice God wants. Hosea's preaching the same. One place where verse 2 is a full chapter 
is Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let's find elements of Psalm 51 that we find right here in Hosea 14, 2. Firstly, the confession of sin. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4. This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. His sins of adultery, murder, deceit. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There, there we have the confession, the first part of Hosea 14.2. But then the sacrifice, the sacrificial part, Psalm 51, 14, 14 to 17. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. When the heart is broken, the spirit and the heart are broken and contrite, then the lips will declare the praise of God and his righteousness because he has forgiven sin, our sin. Hosea 14.3, 14.3. The confession continues. 14.3. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. In verse 3, 3a, Assyria won't save us. We're not going to ride on horses. That's part one or part A, 3a. They were putting their confidence in foreign nations and specifically here, Assyria. Ironically, Assyria will come to invade them. They put their confidence in Syria, but over time, Assyria came to invade and destroy the northern kingdom so that it never became a nation again. Assyria, their savior, became Assyria, their snare. Now, though, a true heart, a genuine repentant heart, acknowledges that man cannot and will not save us. We find this truth throughout Scripture. Let's look at one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Isaiah 31. Isaiah 31, 1 to 3. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. And all of them will come to an end together. No point. Don't trust in the power of man. We find this example also in the New Testament. Let's turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 
1. We'll read 1 to 11. Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. No confidence in man, no confidence in in the flesh, only in Christ. The way they further confess their sins in Hosea 14.3 is that they reject the idols they used to worship. They reject the idols they used to worship. Nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. Idolatry is vain. It's futile. It leads to Nowhere. In fact, it leads to destruction. In 1 Thessalonians, they are commended. They are commended. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 for doing the same. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Verse 9, our word to return is right here in the New Testament, rendered turned to God from idols. That's repentance. Repentance and hope in Christ. Verse 10. Turn to God and hope and hope in Christ. Idolatry is futile. It leads nowhere. In fact, it leads to destruction. All idolaters will find their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Revelation 21, 8. Verse 3, the third part or part C A, B, and C. Part C, for in you the orphan finds mercy. Why does he say orphan? Does he say orphan because all orphans automatically receive the mercy of God and go to heaven? Is that why he uses this word orphan or fatherless? No. It's not because all orphans automatically go to heaven, but an orphan is a perfect example, a perfect analogy of someone who is desperate, who is weak, who is unable to help himself. That's why the word orphan is used. Someone who's weak, who's desperate, unable to help himself, who's powerless and needs the help to come completely from outside not from his own ability or his own goodness, his own status, nothing like that, because the orphan has been abandoned, abandoned by his natural parents. So orphan is used as an example of our need to understand our weakness and our powerlessness 
to rely on God and God alone to save us. Let's prove that orphans are not automatically saved. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It's necessary to do this because some people think poor people or the downtrodden are automatically favored by God and going to heaven. But that's not true. Isaiah 9, 17. Isaiah 9, 17. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. He mentions young men. There again, strength, the strength of young men. No orphans or widows either are going to receive mercy from God. Why? Every one of them is godless and an evil doer. They speak foolishness and deserve the anger of God. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah speaks similarly. Jeremiah 6, 13. Jeremiah 6, 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Who are the least and who are the greatest? The greatest are those who have status, who have honor and reputation. They have wealth. They have position. And the least would refer to the common people, especially the poorest of the common people who don't have money, who have no status, no name, nothing. The least to the greatest. Jeremiah 8 and verse 10. Jeremiah 8, 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. The least to the greatest are all worthless. All sinners, that's why. But if we have a contrite heart, if we have a contrite spirit, then we are received by God. That's what he means by orphan. He means a contrite person who is like an orphan. And sometimes they are orphans themselves, but not always. He means those who have a contrite heart. Examples. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on, on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says there, with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the gospel to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Isaiah 61 verse 1 is quoted in Luke 4:18. 4, 4:18 4, and 19 quote from this passage in Isaiah 61:1. Jesus quotes it. But who here are he quoted it of himself. Who are the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners? He's talking about those who are spiritually afflicted. He's talking about those who are spiritually brokenhearted, spiritually captive to their sin, spiritually prisoners to their sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
That's what he means here in Isaiah 61.1. He doesn't mean that everyone who is a political captive or a criminal in prison is going to be set free by Christ. That never happened. All criminals are not automatically going to heaven. He means the spiritually criminal when they are brokenhearted over their sin. And one last place is Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. It's necessary to clarify this truth in the Old Testament because some false interpreters will take words like widow and orphan and alien. They'll take these words and say, God has an automatic, gracious disposition towards those people when that's not true. They also, on the other hand, they say he automatically has an ungracious, judgmental disposition toward those who have status and the rich. God is not bent against rich people and he doesn't have a proclivity toward poor people. There are a few believers among the rich and a few believers among the poor. Um, more among the poor by the very fact that there are more poor people throughout history than rich people. But so there are a lot of poor believers in terms of economic poverty. That is true. But in terms of the number of poor people and how many of them are saved, it's a few in percentage, even among the poor. Then let's read about the grace of God. How abundantly he pardons. It was mentioned that they wanted it in verse 2. Receive us graciously. Well, let's see evidence of that grace in verses 4 to 7. I will heal their apostasy. God is the healer. They have apostatized. Apostasy means to fall away. They had some initial embrace of God and then they walked away. The initial embrace was a fake one. It was false. It was fickle and phony. But God says he's going to heal that. He says, I will love them freely. To love freely means to love abundantly, generously. He's going to shower blessings on them. That's how much he will love them. He'll turn away his anger from them. Why? Because they repent. His anger turns away when they repent. Verse 5, he will be like dew to Israel. The morning dew is very necessary and refreshing to the grass and to the flowers, such as the lily. They need the morning dew. And God says, I'm going to be like that to Israel so that just like a flower blossoms, because of the dew, I'm going to make Israel blossom. Then Israel will take root. Verse 6, he will shoot, uh, his shoots will sprout. His beauty will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Others will come to him. Verse 7, those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. These analogies are analogies of fruitfulness and abundance, a great harvest and a beneficial harvest to those harvesters, to the reapers. He's describing the way of the righteous, which is abundant spiritual fruit, 
abundant spiritual fruit. Firstly, on the forgiveness of sins. On the forgiveness of sins. Let's go to Micah 7. Micah 7, verse 18. 18 to 20. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all our iniquities, all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. The same terminology is here. Iniquity is forgiven. Anger is removed. Unchanging love, compassion. He gets rid of our sins as though he threw them into the depths of the ocean. Truth and love he gives to us as he promised. Psalm one hundred. Psalm 103, 6 to 14. Psalm 103, verse 6. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And as we read from James 5, James said, Brethren, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The soul is saved from death and a multitude of sins is covered or forgiven. The fruit, the fruit that is often a description of a true believer. If there's a good root there will be true fruit. Even Hosea uses the expression root. Take root, verse 5, take root like the cedars of Lebanon. So, if there is a good root, there will be true fruit. Like the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Christ our Lord also taught that there must be true fruit. There must be enduring fruit in a believer, in a true believer. If it is unenduring, if it's temporary, it's no good. It means that there is a bad root and rotten fruit. Our example is taken from Luke 8. Christ describes this in Luke chapter 8. Let's pick it up when he explains. We'll pick it up at verse 9, 9 to 15. Luke 8, 9 to 15. He begins announcing the parable or explaining it in verse 4, but the interpretation begins at verse 9. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, 
To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root, They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance." The key words, this parable is apt to being misunderstood. We have to believe that the first three soils are unfruitful, worthless soils. They are not true believers. They never were believers. It says in verse 12, the first one, not believe and be saved. They don't believe and they're not saved. Verse 13, the rocky soil says, No firm root, they believe for a while. And then when temptation comes, they fall away. Apostasy. To fall away is another phrase for apostasy. Verse 14, it says, They bring no fruit to maturity. No fruit to maturity. The only fruit is in 15, because it's fruit with perseverance. He says, they receive it in an honest and good heart. Hold it fast, bear fruit with perseverance. Those words are unique to the fourth soil, the good heart. And this is what God promises to happen to the repentant. They will bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8, Hosea 14, 8. 14, 8. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. God, he pleads with them, expressing that he is done, he is disgusted, he has nothing to do with idols, and they must realize that their only source of blessing is God himself. This is their problem, their problem and our problem. When we put our confidence in someone else or something else and not in God himself, That's why the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. To love God, that is the first and foremost commandment. If we have that in view every day, we're on the right track. It's the obvious first and greatest commandment. When when that scholar, the scribe, came and asked Christ that question, and Christ answered, the scholar, the scribe, agreed with Christ. He agreed with Christ that that was the greatest commandment. It was obvious among the Jews that that was the greatest commandment. They would take Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, that passage, they would take it and put it on a tiny scroll and keep it on their person or in their house in sight, visibly, to remind themselves, because they knew it was the obvious, most important commandment. Actually, Hosea 14, 8 reminds us of that. What more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. We should love God because he's the only source of our blessing. Our only goodness comes from him. James 1, 17. 
Every good thing and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 9. This is actually an uncommon way to end a book. He ends it with a question and then a statement. Uh, kind of a question. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. If we're going to claim any wisdom or discernment, we must know what God says. Contrary to the world. We must know what God says if we're going to claim any kind of wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. James, James 3, 13. James 3, 13 to 18. James 3, 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Seems like James is echoing Hosea here in James 3. Don't believe the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Believe God. That's where our only wisdom is. Then he says, Hosea 14.9, For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. God's ways are right. He makes the assertion. The believer, the true believer, will say amen to that. The true believer will not doubt it. The true believer understands that whatever God says is right, it's good, it's perfect, it's pure, there's no fault in it, it's unblameable, they will have their confidence in God's word, the true believer. We read in Psalm, Psalm 12, verse 6, Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined seven times. Psalm 12, verse 6. Jesus said, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He also believed that God's ways are right. The righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. This is the irony, and this is what many people fail to understand, that 
the word of God is meant to produce two results. Two results. The preached word results in either walking in them or stumbling in them. Either walking or stumbling. The righteous, the believers, the elect, the sheep, they will walk in them. But the goats, the reprobate, the unbelieving, the wicked, they will stumble in them. We should not be alarmed or surprised when that happens. The Bible tells us this all the time. It tells us this all the time. Our first example is taken from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of God, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This word produces, it says in verse 16, death to death or life to life. Romans 11. Romans 11. 11, 7. Did not the nation of Israel receive the word of God? Millions upon millions of people, tens of millions of people, if not hundreds of millions of people, over the many centuries, the nation received it, right? But everyone in Israel did not believe it till the day of their death. Right? Romans 11, verse 7. 11, 7. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Those who were chosen obtained it, salvation, righteousness, glory. They obtained it. The rest were hardened. The same word that Israel received. Didn't Ahab and Jezebel hear the word from Elijah the prophet? Yes. Yet they didn't believe. They were hardened and destroyed forever. And many others like that in the nation. And that's the way it is today too. That's why Romans 11 is in the New Testament. And that's why 2 Corinthians 2 is in the New Testament. That's the way of today too. Whenever we preach, there will always be these two results. Either the heart will be a soft heart to receive it, or the heart will be a hard heart to reject it, to fling it away when it's heard. Hosea presents this challenge to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.